me to 2 Kings chapter 14, and we'll also be in 2 Chronicles 25, flipping back and forth between those two passages of scriptures, 2 Chronicles 25 and uh, 2 Kings 14. Uh, we, we looked at last week, uh, the first king was Amaziah. He was a presumptuous king, uh, the ninth king of Judah, and the son of Joash, or Jehoash, the boy king, who in later years would turn away from the Lord. He killed God's prophets and was himself assassinated. And one of the things that had happened is he decided to attack Edom there in 2 Kings 14, 7, and he regained the terri- tried to regain lost territory, and he got it. But his heart was not wholehearted towards God. And it would, it would, you know, if we seek the Lord's will before we rush into disobedience, uh, we would avoid a great deal of trouble. And the fact is, really getting the mind of the Lord up upon situations in our lives. Then he went, what happened is, then in verses 14 through 16, let's look here, 2 Kings 14, uh, yeah, 2 Kings 25, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 25 We'll come back to 2 Kings 14 here in a moment. But in 2 Kings 25, now it came to pass, after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir, and set them up to be his gods, and bowed down himself before them, and burned incense unto them. Wherefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah. And he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? And it came to pass, as he talked with them, that the king said unto him, Art thou made of the king's counsel? Forbear. Why shouldest thou be smitten? Then the prophet forbear and said, I know that God hath determined to destroy thee, because thou hast done this, and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. And, and I find that's a, a fantastic question. Why is it that he defeats these people, and then he adopts the very gods that were powerless to protect him? It would be very analogous or very uh, illustration of of a believer who's been rescued by Jesus Christ, redeemed unto his own, and then they go back into the addictions of the world. These very addictions that can't give freedom. They only bring bondage. And that's exactly what happens here. Well, Amaziah defeated the Edomites because he obeyed the Lord. But then the Edomites defeated Amaziah when he took their gods home with him. Let us look here at verses 17 through 24. Then Amaziah, king of uh, Judah, took advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us see one another in the face. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. There passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trode down the thistle. Thou sayest, Lo, thou hast smitten the Edomites, and thine heart lifteth thee up to boast. Abide now at home. Why shouldest thou meddle to thine herd, that thou shouldest fall, even thou and Judah with thee? But Amaziah would not hear. For it came of God that he might deliver them into the hand of their enemies, because they sought after the gods of Edom. So Joash, the king of Israel, went up. And they saw one another in the face, both he and Amaziah, king of Judah, at Beth Shemesh, which belongeth to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, and they fled every man to his tent. And Joash, the king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, at Bethshemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom, and the treasures of the king's house, the hostages also returned to Samaria. Now, 
There's a similar idea here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? And that's the exact thing. These idols were the reason that brought the Edomites into bondage. Now, these very idols that would bring the Edomites into bondage and the justice and judgment of God upon them were the very gods that Joash sought to bring with him. Amaziah, excuse me. And so Amaziah was bent on defeating Israel and becoming the ruler of a united kingdom. So he sought it through idolatry. He looked for other worlds to conquer, decided to challenge Joash, the king of Israel. He not only ignored the warning of the prophet God sent, but he forgot the words of his ancestor Solomon. Proverbs 18, 12, Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Well, he was proud, he was arrogant. And Joash, the king of Israel, takes Amaziah, bring, breaks down the walls of Jerusalem, takes the vessels in the, in the temple, you see, when we resort to idolatry, we bring the judgment of God and we lose much more than we ever gained. Now, in going further from this, we find Joash's reply. Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar. Now, in this very idea, there's, there's a strong cedar and there's a thistle. And... Amaziah thinks, I'm a strong cedar, when in fact he's just a weed, a little thistle that can be easily knocked down. And pride blinds our minds. It distorts our vision, and it inflates our ego to the place where we can't tell truth from fiction. It was the very thing there in the Garden of Eden that Eve was puffed up with pride Ye shall be as gods, your eyes shall be open, you shall know truth. And the very thing would bring her to destruction. Satan himself lifted up with pride there in Isaiah 14. And we'll talk about that actually in the morning hour, Satan and the great red dragon of Revelation 12. But he rejects the warning. He thinks, I'm going to conquer in my might. And he invades Israel only to be soundly defeated. Now, our pride is one of the things that makes us absolutely vulnerable. And unfortunately, it's one of those spiritual sicknesses, I would say cancer, that we can't diagnose. It's very hard to diagnose. We don't realize how much pride we have in our lives. Others can see it, but it's very difficult for us to see and Amaz I mean, here Joash is trying to say, hey, just stand down and you worry about your territory. But he would hear nothing of it. He was taken captive 15 miles from Jerusalem and went from the palace to the prison. He goes from being in the luxury there of Judah and his palace, Jerusalem, to being a prisoner in the squalor of a pit. They destroy 600 feet of wall. Now, 
going back to 2 Kings 14. In 2 Kings chapter 14, I think I was reading 2 Kings 14, I apologize there. But anyways, verse uh, 2 Kings 14, 12. But Amaziah would not hear, therefore Joash king of Israel went up, and he and Amaziah king of Judah looked one another in the face at Bethshemesh, which belonged to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. The pride would result in a humiliating defeat. Going forth, and Jehoash king of Israel took Amaziah king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah at Bethshemesh, and came to Jerusalem and break down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim unto the corner gate, 400 cubits. He breaks down 600 feet of wall. The city is now vulnerable. And he took all the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam his son reigned in his stead. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, 15 years. The rest of the acts of Amaziah, they're not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. What an awful ending. He's in exile in Samaria 15 years. He returns to Jerusalem briefly as a co-regent with his son. He flees for his life and is a tragic figure in Jewish history. Tremendous opportunities. Tremendous abilities to lead. I mean, he had all, he had wealth, he had power, he had God's hand. I mean, Amaziah was in a good position. Sometimes we say, well, someone who's in such a position is going to have a good life. Well, I mean, you know, the thinking of the day is if someone has, you know, maybe they have a stable parents, they have a nice house, they have wealth, they're going to turn out all right. That's not the case. Always. The case is, if the heart is lifted up with pride and disobedience to God, there's going to be great problems. But Amaziah lived, as James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In Proverbs 16.18, pride goeth before destruction, haughty spear before a fall, and we find Amaziah fell and fell hard. We come to the next passage of Scripture here, verse 23. <clears throat> 21 will give you a little bit of succession what happened. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel the sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath into the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gathhefer. Now, this is the same Jonah that was swallowed by a whale. You know what? Jonah had the opportunity to preach 
a message where God was going to bless his people. Who wouldn't want to preach that message? I mean, Jonah is given the ability, and I'm just taking a quick aside here, we're looking at uh, Jeroboam. But Jonah, you know, if he's there and everyone loves him, God's going to restore, that's a message you and I like. You know, who likes to give good news to someone? I mean, we get excited to give news. Hey, if someone was to tell you that someone unexpected was coming to see you, you know, and you're like, you really would love to see this person, and they give you the good news you're going to see this person, that would, I mean, you would just be overjoyed to hear that news. So, you know, Jonah has to go from this to going to speak to his enemies whom he personally hates, a people he hates, a tribe he hates, a nation he hates, and give them bad news. I don't, you know, none of us like to necessarily be a bearer of bad news unless it's maybe someone uh, that you may not care for. And, and I know then that puts our heart in the wrong position. Nevertheless, going forward, for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. I mean, Jeroboam starts off prosperous, Jeroboam II. I mean, he's the longest reign of any of Israel's kings, 41 years. We find in verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath which belonged to Judah. For Israel, they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his stead. He reigned 41 years. He was not a good king, spiritually speaking, but he brought prosperity to the nation. And just like today, I think many times in our politics, the people don't necessarily care about the moral character of our politicians. They didn't care whether the character of the politician was good or bad. All they cared is our nation prospering, is our nation wealthy. And you look across this world, and political leader after leader after leader after leader, I'm going to make us prosperous. We're going to succeed and we'll be a great nation. Over and over and over again, leaders give promises of this very sorts. Do you have food on your table, money in your bank account, and a lack or, you know, no fear of invasion by enemies? I mean, we want safety and we want wealth. That's many times our main concerns. Now, thanks to Assyria's victories over Syria, both Israel and Judah are finally relieved of the bondage of their persistent attacks from Assyria coming in and coming in and coming in. Or the Syrians in, excuse me. And, you know, the kingdom of Israel reached the dimensions uh, achieved in the days of Solomon, as you'll find in verses 25 and 28 of 2 Kings. And Israel was able to drive out the Syrians out of all their border outposts. And Jeroboam also recovered the territory. I mean, he did a great thing, and God allowed and permitted these victories. But something is very wrong. It's only the veneer. And when when wealth is coming in, we can think, well, God's hand must be upon me. 
I've, I've been a part of various churches through the years, and some of those say, well, God's hand is upon us. You know, the church is growing, but there's the way they're doing it, and some of the things they did were in complete contradiction of Scripture, though the church itself was growing. And, uh, and there can either way, whether it's growing or shrinking, whatever the case. But, nevertheless, the fact is, we can look at the tangible numbers and then equate that with God's blessings. But that's not always the case. Because there are the wicked, and sometimes, the, many times, the wicked will increase with wealth. Is that because they're good before God? No. No, it's not. Just because something happens doesn't necessarily... You look at their character. And there's great crimes. The prophet Amos and Hosea... They would warn that judgment was coming. You know, judgment did come in the year 722 B.C. The Assyrians invaded Israel. They deported a number of the Jewish people. They imported Gentiles from other conquered areas. So the Israelites are spread out. Gentiles are brought into the land. And God's saying, listen, you're going to be destroyed. There's judgment coming on your pride and your comfort and idolatry given to materialism. You realize this, that in this part there in Israel, in Samaria particularly, that the Jewish people were pushed out, Gentiles come in, there's still some Jewish people. Well, when you're in an area much like we have here in this community, you're liable to getting to know someone if someone's you know, seeking for marriage, someone who may be of a different culture. Because you're, you're working amongst people. Well, that's exactly what happened. And so they began to intermarry the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, it wasn't just a fact of intermarriage culturally. It was a fact of spiritual compromise. And it's not just, you know, obviously, Rahab would marry into the lineage of Christ. Here, she's a Canaanite from Jericho. So God's not against that, but he is against a spiritual intermarriage, if you would, with people of different beliefs. That's where unequally yoked, as the Scriptures tell us. And in John chapter 4, verse 20 and 22, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, we shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. And after the Babylonian captivity, the Orthodox Jews, who would return to Judah. And here in Jesus' time with the Samaritans, you had the ethnicity of people that were interracial. Well, to the Jewish people, they just merely looked at the immediate racial intermarriage, and they said, that's wrong. And, you know, and the Orthodox Jews would have nothing to do with these Samaritans. And there's a great problem. In Ezra chapter 4, they wouldn't let those who had intermarried. Now, in this intermarriage in Ezra's time, they're intermarrying, the men are intermarrying with the Gentile women and vice versa, of those whose beliefs are pagan. And Ezra said, we don't want you helping us to build the house of God. We don't want you to help us build, rebuild. I mean, Nehemiah and the same thing. They laughed. But Nehemiah said, I don't want you helping. 
in these mixed because it's 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 a ecumenical compromised union it's very similar much like what you'd find in maybe the catholic church today where it goes into various nations of this world and it kind of the syncretism it kind of picks up some of the flavor of the the religious aspect of an area and and it incorporates that into their worship. Well, the people began to, instead of looking at the spiritual aspect of this compromise, they began to just merely look at the interracial thing of marriage and then they began to say, well, you know, we don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. I mean, Jesus would deal with that in John chapter 4 as he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. Number one, a Jew wouldn't speak to a Samaritan, a Samaritan, let alone would a woman. And yet Jesus still reached out to her. Because Jesus looked, overlooked the historical uh, racial marriages to look at the heart. And that's really where the problem lies. The prosperous kingdom and, and it's easy in our cultures today for one culture to look at another culture and have some sort of animosity. And, but uh, Acts 17 is pretty clear. We're made of all one blood. We're all a part of uh, the creation of God. Humans for whom Christ died. And the rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor here under Jeroboam. And they would exploit and they would abuse the poor people in Jeroboam's time. The landowners would barely care for their slaves. They didn't treat them well. The courts disobeyed the laws of God. And they would favor the rich. I think very similar to what we see today. If you're very wealthy and you're well-known, maybe you're an athlete or maybe a, a Hollywood star and you commit a crime and you get enough money with enough good lawyers, many times you can have a much lesser sentence than someone of much lesser uh, financial means. So the leaders would practice their religion. They would attend the services. They'd bring their sacrifices. They, the wealthy men and their wives would live in luxury while the poor were drowned, trodden, and robbed of their civil rights. You want to know something that's kind of odd at this period of time during Jeroboam? The people would long for the day of the Lord. And I find it even interesting, some Christians today, they said, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. And yet, for the people, many times, who are saying this, they're not faithful, in their, they're not faithful to God, they're not faithful in their devotions with the Lord, they're not faithful to church, and yet they want Jesus to come back. They don't realize that we as Christians are going to have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how you and I have lived our lives. The day of the Lord that's coming to the lost is not a good day. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 27, it tells us they long for the day of the Lord. The religious people, as you find in ignorance. Now, I want you to notice with me, let's look at several things on this day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 27, we won't look at that for the sake of time this morning. You're welcome to look at it on your own. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Now I want you to look at this idea of the day of the Lord. 
the day of the Lord is not a, a day wherein everything is going to be, uh, you know, Jesus is, he's going to make everything right. There's a purging process. Now, when you come into spring cleaning, let's say in your house, I know we're coming into the fall, we're in the fall heading into winter, but when you're coming into spring cleaning, you're throwing out a lot of things in your house. You're wiping down, you're cleaning, you're ex- discarding many things from your house. You're getting rid of them. There's a purification process. Well, in 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And here, the apostle Peter, under inspiration of God, he's saying, listen, God's judgment's going to come upon churches. Here, the house of God, he's saying, where people are gathering, he said, there ought to be a, a cleansing Well, then we come to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, where it speaks very specifically on this day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Am I ready for the day of the rapture? We've been called to look forward to that day. And you know what? I'm looking forward to that day. And I, I, you know, but at the same time, there's, I think, you know, I, I said, Lord, I hope I'm ready. I hope that I... You know, I'm pleasing in your sight, and I'm living in obedience. I, I can't even think about the thought of being displeasing to the Lord. Yes, I'm a Christian. But to be displeasing, there's nothing that I think would crush my heart more. You know, you know as a young child, have a parent say, you know, I'm unhappy or I'm displeased with you. If it was my grandfather or my grandmother that were to say that, I mean, that was just crushing. Let's look at Isaiah 2, uh, 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up. And he shall be brought low. Let's look, turn with me, uh, look down at verse 17. You can read the other for sake of time if you want another time. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks, and into the caves of the earth, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. He's like, you know what? (laughs) These idols are no longer good. All the money I have cannot stop the wrath of God. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? You see, I remember that tsunami that happened in Japan a number of years ago. I mean, just... An unbelievable, the one that I think it shook that uh, nuclear reactor, Fukushima or whatever it was called. I mean, just huge tidal wave that came in and demolished all of the idols, all of the gods. Nothing could stop the immense power of that wave. 
And humanity likes to think we have power. These kings like to think, well, I'm, I, I have power and I have abilities and I have means. And Israel was given to idolatry, which would lead to moral decay and worldly corruption. I want you to look with me at the book of Hosea. Hosea, chapter 6. We're going to look at a number of passages here in Hosea. Hosea, Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Here in Hosea, chapter 6, verse 4. I remember being there in the middle of an earthquake, and I've been in several earthquakes. And I've been in buildings. I haven't been on the ground. Most of the time I've been in buildings when earthquakes have occurred. And it's a, it's a very humbling event when you're in an earthquake. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in one, but the entire ground is shaking. All of these massive structures, I mean, I have been in some high-rise buildings, I think both times that I really remember being in one, I was in high-rise buildings, and the whole buildings are shaking I was in an elevator in one. That was an interesting occurrence. And the force to move such a massive structure is as though it's nothing. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee, O Judah? What shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Chapter 7, verse 8. He hath Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Chapter 9, verse 9, in a description of these people, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. iniquity. He will visit their sins. Chapter 11, I mean, he's saying, listen, I know what you've done. You can hide your sins from you and I, from others, from us. You can hide your sins maybe from your family. You can hide your sins from everyone, but you can never hide your sins from God. In verse chapter 11, verse 7, And my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. You can say the name of God, you can say the name of Jesus, but if you're backsliding and you're in a state of sin, God knows it. And then chapter 13, verse 2. And now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. That's exactly what we have today. People that want money and all the intellectual prowess of academics. These have become idols, money and knowledge. And idols according to their own understanding, all of it, the work of the craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. This whole nation of Judah and Israel, they're completely decayed. Very similar to what we have today. Understand that what the situation we're in, we are on the verge of a great judgment of God. And Jeroboam II would rule from 793 to 753, and there in the year 722, the Assyrians invaded Israel and brought an end to the nation of Israel. British poet and playwright Oliver Goldsmith said it perfectly in his poem, The Deserted Village. 
He said, ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey, where wealth accumulates and men decay. We have another gentleman here. Jeroboam for 41 years, before we come off to leave the next guy till next week for the sake of time and picking up some people this morning, but uh, just as you think about this, Jeroboam II, 41 years of wealth, prosperity, the nation increasing, and the people were lulled in the subtlety of idolatry. Years before, under Joshua, the nation of Israel had failed to separate from the Canaanites. They had failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They had made a treaty with the Gibeonites that would be a very snare in their side. You see, in our lives, if we don't separate and make a distinction on what is right and what is wrong, we begin to muddy the waters. Well, that's what you think, and this is what I think, and all of this. That muddying of the waters, it gives room for backsliding. It gives room for a little bit of idolatry, a little bit at a time. Very small pieces. Until what is clearly wrong begins to become clearly accepted. And now, when in its state of acceptance, you're in a backsliding state. And you're on the precipice of the hand of God upon you. It starts simply in pride. A number of people I've heard say, well, I'm going to stop whatever it is in my life that's destroying me. I, I know I can stop it. And they think they have the power to stop an addictive behavior only to be destroyed by it later on. You must see sin as God sees it. Any compromise. And you will end up reaping Fruit that is quite unsavory. Let's pray, and we will come to the morning hour. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your goodness and grace. Our dear Lord, I ask that you, Lord, would direct our every step. You'd help us to be found faithful. Lord, reveal the pride in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would shine forth the light of Christ. We'd be pure and holy. God, I don't want any compromise with idolatry and backsliding. Lord, please help us. Not that we're any better than anyone else, but Lord, I, I do want to please you. And I pray that for all of us. God, you take over. You take over this day. Well, thank you for what you'll do in the morning hour. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the warnings. Lord, our nation is very similar to what we find in the Bible. And it'd be shortly thereafter that there would be great hurt. Lord, I pray you'd help us as Christians to rise up as a bright light, to shine forth the light of Christ, to get the gospel out. And Lord, may we stand for truth. I love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. All right. God bless you.
you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12? Revelation chapter 12, we're talking about the dragon of broken devotion. And uh, Edwin Cooper was famous across America, yet almost no one knew his real name. Coming from a family of circus clowns, Cooper began performing before audience when he was just nine years old. After a stint with the Barnum and Bailey Circus, Edwin Cooper became a fixture on television in the 1950s as Bozo the Clown. In addition to entertaining both young and old, Cooper had a message for his buddies and partners every week. Get checked for cancer, he said. Yet Cooper was so busy working that he neglected to follow his own advice. By the time his cancer was discovered, it was too late for it to be treated. He died at just 41 years of age from a disease he had warned many others to watch out for. Sin is far more deadly, writes this illustration, than the most aggressive and fastest growing cancer. Sin kills and destroys everything it touches. From the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden until now, sin takes no prisoners. This is the purpose behind everything Satan does. Jesus said, the thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. Because of his evil nature and his hatred of everything good, the devil brings destruction to everything within his reach. When we regard sin as God does, we find nothing amusing or humorous about it. We will not make it the subject of the jokes we tell or those we hear. We will not allow ourselves to be tempted to get a little closer to the line to see if we're still safe. God hates sin with a holy and righteous fury, and so should we. When we find ourselves amused by sin, it's time for us to focus on the cross. Seeing the price paid for our sin reminds us that it's no laughing matter. And I want to look at a few verses this morning here in Revelation chapter 12, the last book in the Bible. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. I'm going to skip just a little bit, uh, just as I'm, there's several characters in Revelation chapter 12. We've talked about the sun-clothed woman being Israel, and uh, just the, uh, how Israel as a nation has never been extinguished 3,500 years uh, as a nation, and uh, yet they still are a people group, yet numerous other people groups have ceased to exist throughout the centuries. And, uh, and it testifies to the promises of God. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, follow along with me as I read. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, just for the sake of uh, time, in chapter 13, just, I just want to give you a note on this. I won't talk about these ten horns and seven crowns and seven heads this morning. I will in a future message, uh, and uh, you'll understand. I'm just kind of giving some uh, overview, foundational things this morning. Nevertheless, verse 4, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered. For devour her child as soon as it was born. And this is where Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And all the, he, you know, he killed all the boys, two and under, uh, in, in an attempt to kill the Christ child, the Messiah, as is celebrated oftentimes at Christmas time. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great, red, great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser 
of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives unto death. And uh, therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And Israel has been greatly persecuted. And then, verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, if this is the first time, or maybe reading this or whatever, what in the world is he talking about? I'm going to try to explain that this morning, and I trust. But uh, what we find here in this passage of Scripture, as well as in chapter 13 and 17, chapter 17 really does give us uh, a whole lot more on these seven heads, ten crowns, and all of that. Uh, And so I'll save that for a later message. But the red dragon here, I just want to make it clear, is Satan. Unequivocally, completely, and always a liar. In fact, Jesus would tell the religious people, the religious leaders, the priests and uh, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, he said, ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is a deceiver of the world, as we find in verse 9. Deceiveth the whole world. But as Christians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we must not be ignorant of his devices. We are in a world today filled with things called truth that are lies. All over our world today. I mean, there's politicians, they'll make grand promises that they know they can never fulfill. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, tells us, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, we are not ignorant of his devices. Now understand this, not only is Satan deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, our hearts, the seat of your emotions, your will, uh, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? How many of you have ever become mad at someone over what someone might have said? And then when some more facts were known, you realized you got angry for no reason. Ever had that happen? There was some situation that happened that you got wrong details, you allowed your emotions to get all out of sorts, and then when truth was known, you realized, oh, oops, <laughs> I didn't really behave well. <laughs> you know? I know I've been there, done that. And, and that's the thing, is our heart, our emotions can deceive us. I mean, one minute, we can be on the top of a mountain as happy as ever. Something can happen, and boom, we're at the bottom. We're just like, ah, you know. Our emotions go up and like this. Our heart and our emotions can easily deceive us. And the words Satan spoke to Eve, Adam and Eve, Eve in the garden, they were false and built upon deceit and a breaking of the commitment to God. It says his words were subtle. Subtle. It comes in as something that's smooth, maybe flattering. Have you ever had someone maybe be, say something to you and you're like, oh wow, that, they're really nice. Only to have them stab you in the back. You see, that's the deceit trying And and it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, and cunning craftiness, talking about false teachers, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. That word cunning craftiness in Ephesians 4, the the context is verses 14 and 15, is skillful in subtlety, 
Have you ever had someone maybe sell you a vehicle or sell you something and they said, wow, this is an amazing machine or amazing vehicle, and then you get it and you're like, this thing's a lemon. They didn't, they didn't tell the truth. Man, they sold you on all the features and they probably you know, rigged it up so everything worked, but they knew as soon as you go down the road and the bumps start happening, things are going to start breaking. They're going to try to pretty it up. They're going, to, you know, they're going to detail clean it. They're going to do all they can to get you to buy that vehicle that they know is a lemon. Well, they're being deceitful. You say, are there any problems? Oh, no, it's a wonderful vehicle. It served us well. I want you to know something. If we love God and we follow truth, follow and obey His commandments, which are for our protection, our joy, our strength, our peace, our rest, and our fulfillment. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And if we're obedient to God, if we're committed to Him, but when we cease to be obedient, then we are no longer committed to God and we are now following lies. You see, sin is a breaking of a commitment to God of a trust and reliance upon Him. And I'm and not only that, but a sin is also, it could be towards our fellow man, man or woman. I, I could be as I sin against them if I'm not dealing with them appropriately. And Adam and Eve were committed. They were promised to each other there in marriage and they were devoted to God with a perfect and fully surrendered commitment to Him. And sometimes they're in Hollywood and Disney and others, they like to try to think of Satan as some red little devil with horns and a little pitchfork as an ugly little creature that really doesn't have much ability. But I want you to know right now that he is relentless in his pursuit to destroy. You and I, we, we need sleep. I know, at least I do. I need sleep. We get tired. We get weary. We get... You know, we just get wore out. The stress of the day can wear us out. But I want you to know in Job chapter 1, verse 7, this is my introduction here. I want, us to lay, I want us to think in our minds. Because as we think, if we know our adversary, you see, we are a body, we're a soul, and we're a spirit. There is a spiritual life that you and I have. When someone passes away, their body is here, but their spirit is gone. Their spirit is gone into eternity. And it tells us in Job 1.7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. He goes all over this world looking. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm just laying some, uh, some truths here. I, I trust uh, you'll follow along in the logic as I go along here. But you said, Pastor, why are we talking about this? Shouldn't we talk about Jesus? Just wait, we're getting there. But we have to understand that obedience to God is following truth. If you follow the truth that God gives us. Now, you might be saying here this morning, you might be thinking, Pastor, if I'm obedient, man, that is constraining. That's just like an animal being put in a pen. Now, I want you to understand, here's a God that made you. It made you in His own image. He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for you. 
He loves you immeasurably. If you have a child you love, you're going to try to put some protective barriers around them if they're young. Now, are you being an oppressive parent? I would say no. You know, as a young kid, uh, you know, yes, maybe you can have a little bit of ice cream, but you can't have the whole carton. You can't have a whole two liter of pop. It's not good for you and not good for your, your body and not good for your development and diabetes and all other sorts of things that can happen. I'm not going to let my daughter play out in the road unsupervised. She could get hit because I love her. I want to put some constraints. Our dog, we keep them inside. We have an invisible fence on our property. And they wear this collar and they don't go outside the boundary. I don't want them bugging our neighbors either. But, and several of you are neighbors here. But uh, I don't want them bugging the neighbors. You see, when I'm following God, God's given me some instructions because he says, listen, if you go outside of these boundaries, you're going to hurt. You're going to have some unnecessary consequences and you're not going to like it. You see, God's not trying to be an oppressive, heavy-handed God, uh, some deity that wants to make our life miserable. He says, I've given you some instructions. You don't have to obey, but please do obey, because if you do, it will be for your good. It will help you. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Just before this in verse Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God says, listen, I want to care. All the burdens, all the heartache, all the troubles you're going through right now, or have gone through, he says, cast it upon me. He says, I want you to follow me. Now, if I was to go into the bush, I am not well-versed in the bush. I would be a novice if I was to go in the bush. For several of you, you are quite experienced, but I'm not. If we were going to the bush, I would say, I'm following you. I'm going to follow you because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to come to some obstacles. I'm going to come to some situations. I don't know how to respond, but you do. You've got experience. Why would I not want to follow the very God who created me? He knows me and all of my weirdness. He knows everything about me, my fears to my joys. He knows all of that. Why would I not want to put my care upon him? Why would I want that word sober there is in a mind. You know what, when someone gets super angry or someone gets super, uh, you know, maybe and it's some intoxicating thing or, you know, I've had people that I've met outside, you know, they're on prescription drugs and, and they're just walking around like zombies. Whatever the case, they're not thinking clearly. You see, I, he said, be sober, be vigilant. You need to be on guard because there is a desire in his life, in, in Satan's heart and mind, to get us to believe error, falsehood, un, that which is not true. Lies. A roaring lion. Now, if you have a large herd of caribou, let's use that as there an animal up here in the north. And there's one herd, there's one caribou off by itself. It's prime picking for the wolves to come. Satan's waiting for us to get by ourselves to destroy us, devour us. And friend, this morning you must be determined and committed to God. Otherwise, we are following the deceptive and destructive path of Satan. Our world is deceived. 
I mean, there were things that happened during the COVID thing, whatever your position on it was, that literally did not make sense. But the outright worship of Satan in our day and age is becoming ever more prevalent. In fact, and I'll give you some statistics on this, many people, they worship Satan without ever knowing that they're doing it. We must resolve in our mind that God's Word is truth. And fully following Him who knows all about us. In the Christian life, we have the victory. We can have the victory over bad habits, addictions, and patterns of life that are at odds with God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin was so easily beset us. Maybe there's something in your life this morning. Man, you keep falling. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm never going to get victory over this particular thing in my life. And I know it's wrong. I know I should be doing it. But I, I don't know how to get victory over this. And it tells us, and let us run with patience. You know, if you're, I've, I've run races before. It's been a few years, <laughs> as you can see. But it's been, a, anyways, when I'm running a race, I want to be as light as possible. I'm not going to put a 50-pound pack on my back ready to run a race. A- unless you're doing something in the bush or something like that, right? But I'm, I, let us run with patience the race is set before. Let's put aside all that extra weight. I mean, when I'm there on that racetrack and I know there's water and refreshments across, you know, throughout the track, I'm going to be as light as possible. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You may enjoy pleasure for a season, for a night. Wow, let's go party it up. And then the next morning, maybe you're asking some friends, and you're like, I did some things I probably shouldn't have done. I don't remember it. Some people have told me. You see, God is not impressed with just some religious practice that we faithfully follow. He is consumed with whether he has your heart, your affections, your devotion, your adoration. You see, we were created to be relational beings with God in a relationship with him. He doesn't want us just to go through, I prayed my prayer, I did this, I did this, I did this, okay, check, 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 check. That's not God. I'm telling you, in the the Garden of Eden, God made a way. Satan tried to break devotion, break commitment, but God is all about restoration. This morning we find the, the, the dragon of broken devotion. I'm going to give some of the background on him, on Satan, and then I'm going to give some wonderful truths. But my friend today, we are either being led by truth or we're following deceit. And I want to tell you, if you follow truth, you won't regret following Jesus. You won't regret it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I yield today to Thee. I thank you for being our precious Savior. And Father, I I pray for each and every person here this morning. Whatever they're going through, whatever challenges and struggles and trials and tears, Father, I ask this morning for them to find victory in truth. I pray that the Word of God that is spoken, Lord, would penetrate our hearts and Lord, we would follow you. If there's anyone this morning that's never accepted you as their Savior, never been born again, 
God, I pray today they'd call out to You to forgive them of their sins and be Your Savior. God, You're so, you're so good. God, You've done wonderful things in many of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would see through the deception and we'd follow truth. I love You. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And um, Ezekiel chapter 28. We find in the Revelation package, uh, passage, excuse me, it mentions him as a great red dragon. And uh, how great is his fall? He's a covering cherub, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You know, this little image of a little red guy wearing a pitchfork and some horns is a completely false concept of Satan. The Bible gives us a very clear definition of him. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes people will push off the spiritual aspect of life. I've talked with people and and dealt with individuals in this very community, and they said, you know, I've got things moving around my house. There is a supernatural realm. I guarantee it. There is a supernatural realm that we have. You have a physical realm, you have a supernatural realm. And we are at physical battle, and there's also a spiritual battle. And the Bible gives us how to be victorious. I don't need to live in fear. I don't need to live in fear of these spirits. I can have the victory through the blood of the Lamb, as it finds there in Revelation chapter 12. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and saying, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. It tells us how beautiful, I mean, it says he has all, Satan was attired in all of these beautiful, beautiful gems and gold. I mean, he just, beautiful in glory. And uh, then it goes on in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and hast thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. And thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Satan is perfect in beauty. In fact, it was his beauty, the pride of his beauty, which would lift him up. And we'll look at Isaiah 14 here shortly, but he was decked with all sorts. I mean, he is the most beautiful creature, excelling in music. The top cherub to cover the Lord. Religious, a scene in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And you understand, Revelation chapter 13, excuse me, you'll find that they receive, he receives worship of man. But it was the Lamb who would defeat and 
reach past the lies and deceits to declare or condition our remedy. John 1, 29, the next day uh, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, Satan's desire, and I'm going to get here with this idea of where this is progressing in our world, but his desire is that you live however you want to live. You live in whatever rules you want to follow. He's okay with that. You live by emotion. You live by following your heart. Live by following your dreams. And I'll get there. I'm getting there. In Isaiah chapter 14, notice with me what he says to God that would lead to his downfall. We find more and more as we come, as our, as we come into the age, you know, as, as time progresses, Television is getting more and more darker and there's more stuff about witchcraft and sorcery and magic and all of this stuff that is permeating our culture today. I mean, you can't watch a Disney movie without there being some sort of magic on it and all sorts of things. And you might say, Pastor, it's all innocent. It's just a white magic. But my friend, the power that comes from God or it comes from somewhere else. I've got to see what is truth and what is not. I want you to ask ask you this morning, if how you're living your life right now, is it helping you or is it hurting you? Are you following the truth of God's Word or are you following your own ways, your own emotions? You see, if we're led by our emotions, we're not being led by truth. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And he, he keeps on saying, I will be like... Here's the truth. The reason for his breach was he was no longer committed to God. A commitment or devotion to yourself and one's emotion over God is pride, and as just as Satan had, it results in judgment. You see, to, to Satan, his most important thing was his own will and his own happiness. And God wants to give us joy and peace. But he's told us how to get it. Satan's pride broke his devotion to God and the result was catastrophic. Satanism is fully embracing of your best self. Fulfill your dreams. Do whatever makes you happy. And I want to tell you with such a situation as we find in our world today, it and our world is going that direction. But our world, we find there's a greater and greater and greater mental health crisis as the world pushes aside, away from God. Within Satan, there's a commitment or devotion based on what, what you're willing to accept as your own authority. Whatever you feel like, go with it. But the Bible tells us, "...the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy." And Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I was looking at something recently. I said, I wonder if there's any statistics to see if there's an increase as society all across the world, as society gets further and further away from biblical truths and goes towards 
something else. Is there an increase in the formal, let's say, religion of Satanism? And there is. Some in this particular thing that I was looking at talks about candles and spells to enhance prosperity. People wanted to increase their money. And they'll do what is necessary to, to gain a power of consumerism. In 1990, Trinity College in Connecticut estimated there were about 8,000 adherents of, the particular, uh, a relig- of a particular Satan religion. That grew in 2008 to 342,000. And, and it's called Wiccan. Wiccan began to be practiced in America in the 1960s by feminists, environmentalists, and those seeking, seeking non-structured spirituality. The religion is individualistic. You can do your own thing. It's not signing on to an institutional religion. It's not signing on to a set of actions or beliefs that you must adhere to. If you believe it today, it's okay. Now, I want to tell you, society doesn't function that way. When you play a sport with someone else, I know as a little kid you do, you're maybe playing cards or you're doing something else, and someone says, well, yeah, we do this, and and my rule says you do this. How come you always win? Well, you make the rules, so you always win, right? If you make, you know, as little kids, we like, I remember I used to play cards, and we had this big glass table, and, uh, you know, I had this, we would play some cards, and the the cards would be all face down, and I'd look under the table, look at my, my siblings' cards, and, you know, and they're like, eventually they're like, you're cheating! Well, yes, I was cheating, you know? But I was trying to change the rules. I was trying to give myself an upper hand. Now, if you're playing hockey and someone's saying, hey, I, I got a score. You didn't get the puck in the goal. I, I scored anyways. I thought I did. No, you didn't. We saw it. No, I scored. If you're changing the rules, there's problems. right? There's some objective standard. I mean, when we're driving down the road, we drive on the right-hand side. Now, if I decide to drive on the left-hand side, when I'm, say, for the, I'm going down towards the library here on Cree Road, okay? So we're going down this way, towards, and I'm driving on the left-hand side. I think we're going to have a problem. I'm really going to have a problem if a big truck is coming towards me. What if I believe I can drive on the, the, the railroad tracks, and I've got a train coming? To, oh, boop, 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 the train will stop for me. I'll just kind of, you know... No, you're going to have big problems. What I'm saying is there are some things that are objectively true. They change irrespective of whether I want them to be or not. And the Bible gives us some truths that are true irrespective of whether I agree with it or not. Whether you agree with gravity or not, there's gravity. And the older we get, if we fall, it hurts and it takes longer to heal. But Satan is all about embracing your imaginations. He's all about this idea of blending whatever feels good into your religious system. Genesis 6-5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Deuteronomy 28, there's a portion of verse 19, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart. There's no commitment, no desire. I'm, you know what? I, I, so often there's things, someone says, well, I don't still want to be a friend anymore. I, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And, and you just kind of go with whatever your emotion is. It leads to a very chaotic life. 
And we find here in Revelation chapter 12, his tail drew, in verse 3, verse 4, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. When Satan fell from heaven, one-third of the angels were, went with him. He had, great, he had great influence. He is absorbed with creating division, stealing one's commitment away from God, stealing your mind away from truth. Because if he can get you to believe a lie, he can be, then begin to lead you further. If you'll believe one lie, you'll go after another lie and another lie and another lie. And then you begin to find yourself in a position, you're like, how in the world did I ever get here? You know, someone maybe that starts in uh, some addiction, whatever it might be, intoxicating substance, pornography, they start small and then as years go by, they get into something and they said, how am I doing what I'm doing now? I never would have imagined myself here. Because one deceit will lead to another deceit and another deceit. He thrives on conflict, anger, and a lack of commitment to Christ. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations. How many times have you had an imagination that someone was thinking something about you, and then when you went to go talk with that person, they weren't thinking anywhere near what you were thinking they were thinking? If that makes sense. <laughs> Have you ever had that? Someone, you're like, I know they're thinking this about me. And then somehow you figure out what they're thinking, and you're like, oh, I was wrong. But it's in your imagination. Our imagination can deceive us. We've got to live by truth. It says, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I take every thought. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm not saying I do this. I need to. But I, I, I'm just saying, this is what the Bible says. This is what I'm working on, okay? But I take those thoughts, and I say, does this measure up to the truth of the Bible? Is it true? Is it not? Well, it might be true, but now how am I to respond? How am I to deal with this particular situation? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. With anger, many times it says you're opening a door for Satan to have influence into your life. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God, is James 1.20. Christ, now we do find, if you'll follow Christ, you know, there's going to be division. Because when I, when I was on that marriage altar with my wife, I said, I do to her, but I don't to everyone else. I'm, I'm, I'm dividing myself. I'm saying no. When I said yes to Jesus Christ, and I said yes, I want to be his child, I'm saying no, I don't agree with anything else. I only believe in Jesus. And so there is division. The gospel does create division. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father by me. That's pretty narrow. But within those very promises, within that that sacred relationship between you and God, in that relationship, if you accept Jesus Christ, died on that cross, and rose again for all the bad you've ever done, He took your place of punishment so you don't have to do that, so you can have eternity in heaven with Him. But here's the thing with Satan. He still has access to God. In Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God, this is... Satan's angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And we find in this passage of Scripture that Satan, you know, he comes across, hey God, uh, 
there's this guy, Job, and God's like, oh yeah, have you considered Job? Job's a, an amazing man. I mean, Job loves me, and Job's like, well, he only loves you because, you know, he's wealthy, and you protected him, you protected his family, and, you know, Satan's not victorious. He's already a loser. He's lost, but he's aiming to destroy as many lives as he can. There are lives all over our city, all over the north, all over our country being destroyed because of following lies. I mean, Satan sought to sow discord between God and Job. God, he only believes you because you, you know, you, he's, you know, he's wealthy. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not perpetuating the idea that if you're wealthy, you're godly. I'm not saying that at all. Because you could be poor, you could be wealthy, wherever in between you are. Your financial situation does not determine your relationship with God. I want to make that clear this morning. But, this is what Satan's telling God. He said, well, you've protected his house, he's got kids. There in the book of Job, Job loses all of his children. He loses his house. He loses his job. And then his wife comes up, and then he gets sick. From the, head, the top of his head to the sole of his feet, he gets boils. His wife comes up to him, and she says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. She says, that old God thing. Yeah, right. He sought to breed discontentment between Job and his, his wife. Between Job and God, she's like, oh, God's not any good. Life's difficult. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. I want you to look, notice with me something else here in Revelation that he seeks to, to create this division. In Revelation, there's all of these lies in churches how many churches have you ever heard of that had splits or had other problems in them? Been there, done that, right? You've seen that. There's problems. Ah, oh, this Christian said this to me. Ah! You know, people get all irate and, ah, you know, the whole gossip mill starts spreading and all this other stuff. They're believing lies. They're believing things that are creating such a divide and it's working for Satan's favor. Revelation 12.10, I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren. I mean, he's constantly before God. Hey, did you know what so-and-so did? Did you know what Chris did? Did you see what he said the other day? Ah, he can't be one of your good ones. You know, there's all sorts of things. He's always accusing me and he's accusing you as believers. He's saying, hey, look at all the bad they do. Oh God, they're not really that good, you know. He's trying to uh, create division. Make us feel unworthy of God. Put us at odds with our brethren. Destroying churches through division and quarreling. Destroying, seeking to destroy other Christians there in Revelation 12, 17. He sought to break the man's first devotion to God in Adam and Eve. You know, he sought with Adam and Eve and, and you know, he said, for God doth know them they eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods. Genesis 3, 5. He'll be your own God. You'll be in control of your own thing. You'll be in control of your life. You're now the master. Try to create that division between Adam and Eve and God. From the very outset, his desire is he would come in subtlety to believe a lie. And then, Adam, and that further division, 
Adam said, well, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. So now he's trying to create division within the marriage relationship. There's lies and things that are told. Whether we believe it or not, if we live contrary to God and in disobedience to Him, we are following the path of Satanism, which is do as you please. In John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. For he that doeth truth cometh, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are rotten God. Excuse me. If you're not doing anything wrong and you're driving by an RCMP officer in town, you're not going to be nervous many times over. But if you're doing something wrong and you're driving by an officer, you're kind of like, Ugh. I remember as a young kid, you know, I was always like, Ugh. <laughs> you know? guilty conscience, I don't know. <laughs> but here's the fact. In Jeremiah 7, 8, what Israel did as they would live their lives, behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. I've asked many a people, and, and they're in some bad situations, I said, in your course of life, I'll tell them, hey, this is what the Bible says. Oh, I know it's wrong, but, okay, well, if you know it's wrong, then it's a lie, and you want to follow a lie rather than truth. Is that correct? Yes, but, okay, well, you've made your decision. The only way to combat deceit, your belief system, if you have a belief system based upon your emotions, cultural ties, spiritual traditions, and not upon God's word, then you're in a constant state of change following different lives. If your belief system is built upon money, you'll be deceived when the valuation of money changes. If you follow materialism and the accumulation of wealth over devotion to God, then you're believing that a commitment and devotion to stuff is more important than God. If you follow your feelings and embrace physical, you know, this intimacy out of marriage, and there's a love of self over love of God, and, and, and God's desire, He's given us what He wants in regards to relationships and, and regards to how to love our neighbor and how to be good employers and all this stuff. If we follow our heart, follow our emotions, then we're following a path of a lack of commitment to God. And God's desire, it's not to like, oh, well, you've done bad, so you can't do right anymore. No, that's not God's desire. God's not like, oh, well, you know, some, some groups might like, well, they're shunned. Let's give them the boot. Let's help them out. You know, let's give them the extra hard kick to make sure they're early out. You know, they never come back. That's not God. That's not anything of God. God's desire. Satan will be like, ha, the accuser of the brethren, ha, you're no good. You messed up. You're worthless. All these sorts of lies that come into our minds, those are not of God. To destroy us, to believe lies. This whole idea of Satanism is you are the God, expression of personal liberty and freedom. Having to hasten here, but the Bible tells us rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. You know what? If you want to do your own thing, you're saying, God, I've got it. I'm going to follow my own path. And I'm not telling you the path that I'm telling you. I'm saying, you look at the Bible. This is the authority. Not what I'm saying. You, you look at the Bible. This is the authority. You see, rebellion is applauded, it's praised, rejoiced in movies and TVs and society at large. But I want, you to tell, I want to tell you, years later, many of those who go that way, they either die young, they have a lot of heartaches, they have a lot of problems. You look at Hollywood today. Yes, they've got money. But there's constant upheaval 
in relationships and children problems and all sorts of things. The adversary is waiting to destroy. And Israel's crime in Jeremiah chapter 7 was trusting in lying words. They followed the doctrine of devils. They followed what they wanted to do. They followed money. They followed uh, you know, the Canadian dream of being wealthy and entrepreneurial. And You know what? Satan has deceived the whole world. It says, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. That word blind is to the mental discernment. You know, I, I've talked with, have you ever had someone and, and, and maybe they haven't accepted Jesus Christ? And I'm like, I don't understand this whole Christian thing. And then maybe when you, when, remember when you accepted Jesus Christ? I mean, you started to read the Bible and you're like, I never saw it that way before. The Bible comes alive. Satan's desire is to give a smorgasbord. Believe whatever you want. Why are there so many religions in the world? He's okay with religion. He's religious. But he doesn't want you to the truth of Jesus. You realize even in the tribulation period that's coming in the future, there are people that will cling to their idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, worship devils, wood, but they would not repent towards God. Israel was willing in Jeremiah 7 to believe entirely false truths. Yet they wouldn't believe the very God, they wouldn't believe the very words of the God who delivered them from Egypt from all the bondage and slavery they were in. They'd listen to the words that would make them feel good. They'd listen to these preachers that would say, Oh, peace is coming. All this good's going to come upon your life. But selfish living is false living that is following lies. Carnal living is living by a lie. You see, sin always brings forth death. It's a commitment to a lie and not truth. A commitment after another. You know, one commitment after another commitment after another commitment after another commitment. Where are you going to be satisfied? Where are you going to have that peace and that joy within in your life? You see, Satan coaxes one into offerings and spiritism, but God wholly rejects these things. And God's greatest desire is He wants your heart, and your affections. He wants people to love Him. We're made in His image. We like people to like us. I don't know about you, but I do not like people getting angry at me. I, I don't like it. I mean, I just like, you know, you say something, they're like, ah! You're like, Ugh. You know? I don't like people being angry at me. I, I think most people are like that. Now, I'm not going to compromise, but at the same time, I'm going to do what I can, if at all possible, to avoid making people angry at me. In the same way, I'm, I, want, I don't want God angry at me. I want His heart. He wants my heart. The devil wants people committed to Him. Or committed to whatever your concept of life is. You see, obedience to God is a love of God. It's very abhorrent to Satan. This great red dragon, as he draws a third of the angels of heaven with him, he's about destruction. And my friend this morning, as I'm drawing this to a close, Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. What you follow is either truth or a lie. 
and there will be consequences of what you're following. Someone might, and, and you say, well, not everything can be true or false. Let, let me give you an example. If I, many times we follow, you know, I'm going to be a, the greatest hockey player ever, okay? I'm not. I can't even skate in hockey. I mean, I can skate, but I can't do a puck and coordinate. I, I just can't do it. I don't have those coordination skills. I'm 41. I pro, uh, yeah, it's not happening, okay? But, I mean, I could believe it. I'm, you know, I could go out there and work hard and, and, you know, try to make it into the NHL, but probably they're going to say, well, you're too old. You know, most of those guys, they're young. And, and I might tell you, I'm going to be the greatest. And your pastor, you're crazy. You're plumb out of your mind. Yes, I am. You know, I'm going a path that is not reasonable. I can believe it with all my mind, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Someone might say, well, I'm going to go party the night up. Have a good time. Tomorrow will be great. And tomorrow, after you've partied the night away, you've done some things and you're like, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I know, I need to stop this. You went with a hope of some, some consequences, of some result that didn't pan out the way you thought it would. And maybe your life has gone a direction and you're like, it's not turning out the way I thought it would. Maybe you're following some lies. And we don't like to call it that way, well, I'm not following lies. How could I be deceived? If Adam and Eve were deceived and they were perfect, you and I can be deceived. Let me give you a commitment, uh, an illustration of commitment and unfailing love. There was a un very unusual military funeral in, Cal in California in December of 2013. Sergeant First Class Joseph Gant, who fought in both World War II and the Korean War, was laid to rest. He had been captured in Korea in 1950 and died the following year. But his body was not returned for many years, and his death was never confirmed by the North Koreans. His wife, Clara, waited for decades for her husband to come back. She regularly went to meetings with government officials seeking information about what had happened. Clara even bought a house and had it professionally landscaped, so all Joseph would have to do when he came home was to go fishing. She was 94 years old when his remains were finally brought home for a military funeral with full honors. It wasn't the homecoming she dreamed of, but she finally knew his fate. Clara told the reporter who interviewed her, they told me if anything happened to him, he wanted me to remarry. And I told him, no, no, here I am, still his wife, and I'm going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home, she said. Love, true, godly love, is not temporary, transient. Love is a commitment that is meant to last. Love is not based on everything going right or always being happy. Love is not an emotional feeling, but rather a choice of the will. Casual commitments do not produce a foundation for deep and meaningful relationships. Instead, we should love others as God loves us with an unfailing love that never ends. End quotes. God doesn't give up on us. Have I followed lies? Absolutely. Can I be easily deceived? Absolutely. But the only way to determine a lie from truth is this book. This book. How do I love people the way I should? This book. How do I tell if, if, if something's going to happen? This book. Because the God in heaven who made me, he loves me, he loves you with an incredible love. As an enemy of his, he still goes to the cross, he still dies. That you and I can be his child, that's unconditional love. And the truth is, you're valuable. 
The folly of living according to lies is to leave off a devotion to the one who loves me more than anyone else. Satan's desire is to destroy as many lives as he can. And many people might want to just give you a positive message. But if I only tell you good things, but I never tell you the bad things. If someone always tells me, you're the greatest hockey player ever! Woo! And other people look at me like, I don't know what that guy sees, but he's clearly blind. If I only tell you the good, but I never tell you what God says, never tell you the truth, you're not going to improve. You know, I could be out there playing hockey and someone came up to me and they said, well, here's some fundamental things that you need to do. And I have a lot of fundamental things I need to do with it. But anyways, you know, here's some things to, to work on. Here's some truth to correct my life. God's desire is to give us truth to correct our lives so that we can know the rest that He wants to give us in our lives internally. I'm not saying you won't have troubles and struggles, but He wants to give us a rest internally. God's promises are true. They're unfailing. False doctrine is not just another way. It is a lie. If you compromise truth with error, it's still error. If I could say north is that way. You're thinking, you're kind of crazy. <laughs> That's not north. Or maybe, I don't know, something like that. North, northwest, I don't know. I'm totally confused here. <laughs> but nevertheless, I could give you a direction and say, well, it's, it's, it's this way. Well, yes, it's this way, but what way? Directly. You know, if I just kind of give you some bland answer, that's not going to help us. The Bible's desire is to give us clear direction. Have you ever had a boss tell you to do something? He said, just go get it done. How am I supposed to do it? Well, you figure it out. You know, you just look in with a, you know, a blank stare. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I've been there too many times, you know. And you try to figure it out. Oh, that's not how you should have done it. Well, you should have given me instruction in the first place. The truth is this morning, and I'm done almost here, we must resolve to make a commitment to God and His truth over following our hearts and feelings. Our feelings can deceive us. But if we know what the Bible says and we do it irrespective of our feelings, we honor God and God fulfills His promises. God's desire for all of us, follow truth. Find the truth, follow the truth. As we come to the time of invitation this morning, can I have Mrs. Pat come forward, please? I know I've gone longer than I usually go this morning, a little longer message, but there is someone out there waiting to destroy your life. Yes, we make our own bad decisions. There's a lot of temptations to follow the wrong path. You've got to determine what is the path of truth. And I say it's found in this book. It changed my family. I had grandparents, hard alcoholics. Grandpa was very unfaithful to grandma, all sorts of problems. The gospel came and changed my family. It changes. They began to follow the truth of God and it forever changed them. Christian, today I trust that you would say, okay, I'm tired of living my life by just my emotions. I want to see what God says on how to live my life. I'm tired of running the rat race of up and down and all this roller coaster. I just want to know truth. 
And I'm not saying your emotions won't go up and down, but I am saying, you know what? You're going to settle it today. I'm going to make the foundation truth. That's what I want to follow. And the Bible will lead you into all truth. Not what I'm saying. You look at the Bible for yourself. If you need help, I'd love to meet with you. But if you've never had that foundation, your foundation must be Jesus Christ. Accept him as you're a sinner. We're all sinners. We've all done bad things. We know we all do bad things. We say bad things. Jesus came to die. Forgive us of all our sins and be our Savior. As the music plays this morning, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, this time of invitation, if you're unfamiliar with it this morning, just time to pray. As I was preaching, maybe internally, in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts, began to think about something you need to do. There might be God saying, hey, you've never been saved. You've never become a Christian. You've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. And maybe God is convicting your heart. I, I need to accept Jesus this day. Or maybe as a Christian, there's some things in your lives and you're just following emotions. You're following, going with whatever and anger and frustrations and begin to follow lies. And today you've resolved, you know what, I just need to see what the Bible says on how I need to live. And I'm going to follow truth. You know what, God never leads us. In a bad way, yes, there may be struggles and trials, but he promises to be with us. My friend, you too can know the truth. This book, God's preserved to help us. It's not there to harm us or put us in a little box. It's there so we can know the God who created us. Just a moment longer, if you'd like to talk about anything afterwards, feel free to see me. And I'd be happy to pray with you or chat with you however you'd like. But the danger and the dragon of broken devotion. Broken devotion is to follow lies, not truth. And I trust today you'd, follow, you'd make a commitment, I'm going to follow truth, as the Word of God says. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, I know I dealt with some things that a little darker, but Father, at the same time, as Revelation 12 tells us there, and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, it's Your shed blood on that cross that gives us the victory. The truth, as we're all guilty, the truth is that You want a relationship with us. You don't want us just going through some religious exercises, but You want the real relationship, a spiritual relationship, our spirit connected with Your spirit. And Father, knowing what it's to be, to know you. And Father, we know that through your word. Lord, I love you. Thank you for this day. God, I thank you that I don't have to fall into the trap of deceit, but Lord, we can know the truth. And I know that I do fall. And every one of us does. Father, help us to get back up, look for truth, and to follow it. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. God bless